We are third week of Advent, and our series in Advent this year is focused on the second Advent, the second coming, arrival of Jesus when he returns, but also seeing that it's, it's directly connected to his first coming, that which we celebrate at Christmas, his birth in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And if you've been following along with the liturgical art, you'll remember that the first word of the first week was wait, and then it was prepare, and then this week is rejoice. So we find ourselves with the theme of rejoice. Now, we, we have heard the call to rejoice and to have joy in the Christian church. And sometimes we hear it particularly around the Christmas season, right? And, and yet oftentimes, both generally in the church and then specifically around Christmas time, there are times when it can feel fake or just like a facade, right? Something we just kind of, kind of put on. I mean, maybe it's, I, I think of my experience of many Christmas movies, right? It's, it's all about the Christmas spirit, not really defined. Um, maybe it's just kind of being nice in the moment or it's, it's enjoying the lights and the snow and some of the feelings around Christmas, which I'm, I am for those things, right? Recognizing that often those celebrations and things that we do in the Christmas movies that we love are, are very separate from and different from. They're kind of like a, a, almost a parallel celebration to uh, the Christian celebration of the coming of Jesus. Uh, but often that putting on the facade is, is just that. And it doesn't last, right? I mean, part of the, the celebration of Christmas is it's particular to a time of year and that whole Christmas spirit. You know, it can be gone actually quite quickly after Christmas. Sometimes we don't even find it there. But sometimes we find this in the church as well, right? Just the call to rejoice, which feels like, hey, just be happy without really a depth to it. I thought about it in terms of Christmas. I don't know if you've experienced somebody with real joy. And we often find this with kids, right? And one of our favorite Christmas movies is Elf. And, and Buddy the Elf is basically like a big kid. This is, this is his character, right? And so the joy that he expresses when he learns that Santa is coming to Gimbel's department store, it's, it, it's uh, a little bit infectious to watch it and his smile and his excitement. Santa's coming, I, I know him! And, uh, and the manager of Gimbel's looking at him like he's crazy, right? Which you, you would do if you were in that same situation. Uh, and they're, they're going for this Christmas spirit, Christmas joy, and, and yet the, the manager... Is, is not for, you know, Buddy says, smiling is my favorite. Make work your favorite. And, you know, there's a whole, uh, there, there's a whole picture here of, of genuine joy and then just uh, putting the, the face on it. And, and our temptation can be to do that as we're called to, to have joy. And, and if you've read the artist statement, I encourage you to do that. If you haven't, don't do it in this exact moment. But it's in the worship guide, upside down in the back. But, uh, um, that, that's also, we, we can just say that anything that kind of gets messed up, it's a part of the mess of, of uh, our liturgical art that will come together after Christmas and we will not have any problems then. But, uh, so let's just say that the printing of the worship guide was part of that, right? There are a lot of verses that call us to joy. And, and we don't actually have joy mentioned here in Revelation chapter 7. And, and yet, there is a clear picture of joy as there is this Worship that occurs before the throne of God, giving praise and honor to the one on the throne. 
praising him for salvation and giving thanks and honor and glory to him, recognizing both what he has done and what he will do. There is a joy, and which is all the more stark when we consider that it comes in light of chapter 6. And we're doing the same thing that we did last week, because these are really long chapters, but I want you to have the full picture. So I'm going to explain some of 6. And if you want to look in your Bible... If you don't have one, there are Bibles spread out through the chairs. And the hardback Bibles on page 1030 is where we find chapter 6 and 7. We, we find at the end of chapter 6, which I will explain more, there is this question of in the midst of great mess. Chapter 6 is not very encouraging. Uh, there is this question of in light of this wrath that is being poured out, who can stand? That's how it ends. Who can stand? And it feels very much like a, in the light of all this, it's a rhetorical question, and nobody can stand. And yet, what we find here in chapter 7, which is described by many theologians as an interlude in the midst of these symbolic visions throughout Revelation, that the, these symbolic visions that explain both what are happening, what is happening, and what will happen in the future, there, there are these interludes here in chapter 7, then in chapter 10, into chapter 11, and in the beginning of chapter 20, that, ex- that describe the church. That describe the church in the midst of these other things that are going on. And so here we find this description in chapter 7. I'm going to explain a little bit of the 144,000 and, uh, and this multitude. But there is a picture of that church standing. Standing in verse 9, we see in worship of the Lord. And so this question of standing is one that can give us great hope and and invite us into rejoicing in who God is and what he has done. And so as we look, we'll see three questions. What is it to stand? Who can stand? And how can they stand? Let, Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, that you would find uh, us by your power, standing before you, worshiping you, rejoicing in who you are and what you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Who can stand? The very question that happens at the end of chapter 6 is in light of, we have to understand then what it means to stand. So what is it to to stand? Chapter 6 is a, it's a scary chapter. I mean, maybe that's the best way to describe it. We ended chapter 5, if you remember last week, with the Lamb of God able to open up the scroll, to open the seven seals and the scroll that reveals God and his work and what is to come. And we see chapter 6 is the opening of the seals. We find those first six seals opened in chapter 6. The first one is the rider on the white horse who conquers. Uh, there's not a lot terrifying there. Uh, it, it might connect later to, uh, to this picture of, of Jesus. But then we see the rider on the red horse and the rider on the black horse and the rider on the pale horse. And what they bring is, is terrifying. It's strife and war and economic destruction. And then we get to the fifth seal, which speaks of the martyrs, those who are killed for their faith and the martyrs that are yet to come. And then we see the sixth seal, and it is 
natural disaster beyond our comprehension. And what we find encapsulated in chapter six, between the social strife and the war and the ecological disaster and the sickness unto death and the economic and religious persecution and the natural catastrophe, is it is a description of suffering and brokenness and evil. It is not, again, a pretty picture. And, and, and we are often faced with this question of what do we do with a good God in the midst of suffering and evil that exists in this world? And, and we might be experiencing some of that even in this moment. And we might be aware of it beyond things that we would want to even mention in, in, this, uh, in this group, right? We, we, not, to, not to cover it up. And not to act like it's not there, but we are aware that there is evil and brokenness in this world beyond what we want to talk about or think about. And certainly beyond what we want to experience. And we pray at some level that we don't experience that. We, we pray for God's grace and goodness uh, in, in our lives. And yet this is a very real reality that exists in our lives and in this world. And the Bible steps into it in really profound ways. And to be clear, we do not here find an explanation of evil. It is not explained. It is not explained in Scripture. And yet, there is a picture of it being contained and being used by God for his glory and for our good, for the good of his people, those who stand. And we'll get to who they are and how they're able to stand. But... There is this picture in chapter 7 coming in full light of the brokenness and suffering and downright evil that exists in this world. And in the midst of that, there are those standing, worshiping, rejoicing in God. Salvation has led to worship. Look at verse 10. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in verse 12, Continuing worship, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then this proclamation in 15, 16, and 17 of the good that God is doing and that he will do, there is a picture of rejoicing standing before the God who does this amazing work. And it is that, just that, that idea of standing carries in verse 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they're standing because they've been sealed. We'll get to that on the who can stand. But they are rejoicing in both what God has done and is doing now. So in verse 15, we find that they, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. This promise of what God is doing now. But then verse 16 and 17 also note that there is something more to come. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Jesus, the one in the midst of the throne, he will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
We're looking forward here to chapter 21. That's coming in a few weeks. When all things are made right. All tears are wiped away because there's no more evil. There's no more suffering. There's no more brokenness. This is the hope of what is to come. And they are rejoicing and worshiping in light of that. And there are, clearly, Scripture is holding together the fact that there is the brokenness, there is the suffering, there is the evil, there is the tribulation from which they are coming. We find in, in verse 14 this picture of who they are. There is a brokenness, and yet there is the worshiping and the rejoicing even now. So that the hope comes that they might fulfill the promises of God. This is a theme that... that Continues throughout Scripture. Look at the Psalms, and we've done multiple series through the Psalms that recognize that things are not the way they're supposed to be. There are many Psalms of lament, of crying out to God, "Where are you? Why are these things happening?" But it's also a theme to see rejoicing in the safety of God, even when things are not as they should be. Psalm ninety-one, verses five through six: "You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence." that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Those things are there, and yet there is this beautiful picture of not fearing. Not that they go away, but in the midst of it, there is hope and reason to rejoice. How can we do that? That's the third question. The first is who? Who stands? Who has that hope? The, the, the passage here starts with all of, we, the, very much in, in uh, in view here is chapter 6. So all this amazing destruction, but then we have this interlude, verse 1 of chapter 7. And I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea against any tree. They're, they're protecting from that wrath and destruction that's coming. And the, the ceiling is coming. Verses 2, 3, and 4 speak to the people of God who are sealed, set apart, protected, empowered to stand. That there is this, this clear truth in view that the people of God are protected, that they are sealed from that brokenness, even as it's going to come. So that as the, the angels protect, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had given power to harm the earth and sea, do not harm until we have sealed the servants of our gods, the, servant of our God, the servants of our God. There is this before the creation of the world, before even the brokenness and tribulation enters, there is God at work. This is, remember, the story from beginning to end, God is working and he is in control of the story. He is the one on the throne. He is the one who is able to accomplish these things. And so the description is the 144,000. We may have heard, of, uh, if we've spent any time in Revelation, you've heard people talk about uh, there are, are, are some uh, sects, cults that, that talk about being only 144,000 in the history of the world that will be like the specific actual number. Throughout Revelation, we find symbolism, symbolic visions. And this is very clear. We have the 12 at work. This 12 is this number of wholeness, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Uh, this is very clearly a symbolic 12 times 12 times 1,000 is this picture of uh, a description, a symbol of God's people. And we talked 
last week from chapter 5 about uh, the 12 and the 12, the elders that sat on the throne, the 12 tribes of Israel combined with the 12 apostles, the Old and the New Testament, all one story together. And we hear and we see here the 144,000. But here is the, the beautiful picture that we see the symbolism and even the description and the order of the tribes. It's, it's stylized in a unique way. It's communicating something in particular, uh, this, this symbol of who they are. But it's the same thing that happened in chapter 5. If you were here last week, we talked about the fact that, that John is seeing, is he's first hearing this vision, and he hears about the one who is able to open the scroll, this thing that he desired, right? This thing that was necessary. And uh, one of the elders says that the lion of the tribe of Judah is here and able to open the scroll. He's, he hears the lion is there, but he turns and he sees the lamb. It's this poetic language that we find here in Revelation. The hearing, the seeing is, is pointing us to, to this symbolic vision. In the same sense here, he hears the 144,000. He turns in verse 9. And what does he see? After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. It is the multitude. It is this picture of heaven that, that we heard a little bit about from all, every tribe and tongue and nation that, they, that, that Rachel and Josh and the rest of the folks experienced in Kenya, of multitudes gathered together. We, we've seen different pictures of that in different places. That is the picture here. This is what he sees. The church are the people of God, those who are sealed. This is God's people. We saw that connection last week between the, the promises in the Old Testament to the 12 tribes and the promises now to the 12 tribes being expanded, Israel being expanded to all nations and all peoples, that God embraces the new Israel, the church around the world and throughout history. And that, that is who stands before him. That is who is sealed. They have been washed, verse 9 and verse 14. We find this language occurring multiple times in the blood of the lamb. The lamb is the lamb. He's, Jesus is described as the lamb because the lamb is the sacrifice, the sacrifice that covers the brokenness, the sin that, that we all hold within us. So th this is necessary for us to to. To, to rejoice in, to celebrate in, because it's a recognition that the evil isn't just out there. We, we might read chapter 6 and we think of all of the, the brokenness and the evil that we need to be protected from. And so we hear verse 1 and this picture of the angels holding back the winds. We're like, yes, he's protecting us from all of the evil out there. And yet what we find throughout Scripture again and again is that we need protection and ultimately washing from our own evil, from the evil that is in, within me. And within you. And here, those who can stand are those who have been washed from their own brokenness. From the own ways in which we have sinned against, rebelled against, turned against our God. And in that sealing, in that washing, in that forgiveness of sins that we celebrate every week as we come to the table, we are reminded that his blood was poured out for us. That it is Washed, that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We find that 
that beautiful picture in verse 14. That is hope and life for us, something to give us joy. And we need that reminder sometimes that, that we're, we're, we just make decisions that are selfish and self-focused and uh, around, uh, not around serving others or serving the Lord. Sometimes we, we, we just want to think about evil as, again, being that thing that's big and out there. I, I um, was challenged, as I was talking about, I was challenged by the eminent theologian uh, Andy Covey to think differently about a movie that I had recently seen. Um, and it was I, I, it's Songbirds, Snakes, it's the Hunger Games uh, prequel. Um, it doesn't matter if you, haven't, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, but the Hunger Games was a popular series, and there's like the, the big evil guy. So I'm going to give away a little bit, but only if you haven't seen any of them, right? So this is really not much of a spoiler alert. But there's the prequel, and it focuses on the guy who is the main evil guy in the, the series to come, right? So you know how it ends. Like you're watching the show, and you know how it ends. And, and you're expecting a little bit what has happened from a lot of stories is there's the villain, and they, they do a prequel, and they, 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 they show you this big traumatic thing that happened to that person that explains why they're evil, because it can only be because of some big traumatic thing. So then we're like, oh, okay, now I get it. Uh, and, and you don't get a big traumatic event. And the songbirds, snake, I, I should have remembered the name of the uh, movie. Yep, uh, Danny knows. He'll tell you afterwards. Uh, and and the, the point that... Uh, that, that Andy made was that's just who we are. We just make selfish decisions all along the way. And sometimes they add up more and more, but that, that's just the reality of us. Every one of us is broken, rebellious, sinful human beings. We don't need some big dramatic event to explain our own evil. And here we're reminded of that, that we all need to be washed. And so those who are standing are those who are washed, who have had that uh, experience of being forgiven so that we can then rejoice in the salvation. Salvation, verse 10, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the Lamb who has sacrificed himself for us. Blessing, verse 12, and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving. There's thanksgiving here. There's something to rejoice in. And here's the reminder that rejoicing and the idea of having joy finds, it by nature, finds its existence in something else. We think about happiness, and happiness is a little bit different in this way. Happiness comes, it's a feeling, and, and it can come from a, any number of circumstances that we're experiencing, and we all pursue happiness, right? Pursuit of happiness, we all deserve that, and we should all find that, and we, which means we should all be happy, as defined by us. Anyway, um, joy is rooted in something else. You, joy is in something else. We rejoice in something. We find joy in something. There is no joy as a feeling. That's not what joy is. That can be what happiness is. Joy is rooted in something else. We rejoice in the king on the throne. We rejoice in the lamb. We rejoice in his salvation and all that he has done and all that he will do. That is where we find joy. And so that we can be rooted, our joy can be rooted in that even when there is brokenness and mess and even evil, deep evil in this world. It is not a feeling. It is rooted in something very real. It is rooted in the fact that, that 
the king, came to this earth. He entered into the evil and the mess himself. We celebrate at Christmas this reality, his humiliation, that he entered into that evil and brokenness for you and for me. We rejoice in him and what he has done in his salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, to the promises that he gives that there will one day, the promises of what is to come, one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's an amazing promise. We find joy in that. And so we're invited to, in this moment, and, and, and Advent can be a moment of focusing in us in that direction, because we can become so focused on the, the, the pain and the evil and the brokenness that we forget all of the other stuff. I mean, if you've had a toothache, a real toothache, right? A tooth is not very large. Maybe it's actually, we could take it even down a notch. If you've ever had a splinter, you know, it can just drive you crazy if it's, a, if it's a big enough or it's in the right place, right? This tiny thing. And, and you are not thinking about, in that moment of experiencing that pain, whether it's the toothache or the splinter, you are not thinking about, your, your body could be in perfect health otherwise. And you're not thinking about any of that. You're completely focused on the pain of that one thing. And this is regularly our lives. We are focused often on the brokenness and the evil. And there's an invitation here to rejoice in God who is at work even when that stuff is happening. Not to say that it's not there, but there's an invitation to, to, to divert our focus to other things. And that is something that I pray happens in the Advent season, but it actually, we are invited into that each and every week as we come together to sing, to worship, to proclaim the gospel in confessions and songs, to hear it preached, to, to experience it at the Lord's table. It is a drawing us back to the beauty and glory of who God is that we would rejoice and worship in him. How can we do that, though? There's a picture of this happening for the church. It's because of what he's done. Salvation belongs to our God, verse 10. It's not by anything that we've done. We, we try to regularly stand in the midst of all of the mess by our own power. We try to get more power. Or we try to get more money that will make us stable when the craziness happens, right? We try to get reputation and build relationships that, on our own, in our own power, that are going to provide for us. And sometimes we take really good and right, beautiful things, and we think that that's where our hope is. So it could be, uh, it could be politics. And yes, there could be good in politics and serving in that way, but we, we put our hope there. Or we put our hope in, uh, in, in good things like neighborhood development. Good and beautiful. That actually should be an outworking of the gospel. But if that is the place where we put our hope, then we're, we're missing it. We're, we're not going to be able to get there. Those flow out of gospel hope, but they are not our ultimate hope. It's, it's all the things that we take that are good, a part of God's good creation. Things that we should be called into, and we make those things ultimate. And the moment those things become ultimate, we, we're missing the opportunity to rejoice in that which gives us true and ultimate hope. None of those things, nothing outside of the king, outside of the lamb, will be able to free us from the brokenness and the tribulation. Those who come 
out of the tribulation. There's this question of who are those clothed in the white robes and from where do they come? And the elder says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There's, again, this recognition. They, They come out of mess and out of brokenness. But it's because of the forgiveness that is offered by the blood of the lamb. This is the lamb who arrived 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem so that he might be sacrificed for you and for me. That tribulation that he himself experienced. He contains the evil. And he brings us hope in the midst of it. He doesn't explain it. But he enters into it himself. So that we might be freed from it ultimately. And that we might have the hope of that and the, free, the freedom to rejoice in him even now. And so we pursue rejoicing in him. We pursue worship and proclaiming thanksgiving and glory and honor and salvation are the Lord's. And we find great hope in the midst of that. And even as we experience great evil and brokenness and tribulation, we find great hope and we're able to rejoice. Let's pray.